Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 60. Psalm 60 as we continue looking through the Psalms together in the evenings. Uh, both uh, Senior Pastor Fred Greco and I keep uh, books of the Bible open and we, we go through them in that Reformation pattern of serial expository preaching. And that means that we get a well-rounded diet of what is in the Word of God. We don't uh, skip chapters because their themes are difficult or obscure. We, we uh, recognize that God has spoken to us and we should hang on His every word. And so we march through uh, uh, each uh, book of the Bible, each chapter, chapter by chapter, as well as... Uh, section by section. Uh, as you're turning, let me also encourage you to continue uh, in good works and to continue in prayer. Uh, today was a historic day, was it not, for Christ Church? We, we worshiped together for the first time uh, in two morning services, one at 8.30 and another at 11. And uh, I think I saw some email in the afternoon with some numbers in it. We had, Fred, how many in the, in the, early, or the first service and the second in the morning, roughly? So uh, we were at uh, at the about at the number where the fire marshal would put us in jail if we had done it all together. So that's a pretty good reason to have two services, and ask the Lord to continue gathering in the saints and building up the saints in this place, as uh, Christ is pra- praised here at Christ Church. Well, Psalm sixty. This is the word of God, uh, indeed uh, inspired uh, and inerrant. To the choir master. According to Shusen Udith, a mitcom of David for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Eden, Edom in the Valley of Salt. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in His holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for in vain is the salvation of man with God. We shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Let us pray. 
Oh God, we ask that these words inspired and true might be applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Teach us how to live, how to think, how to feel, that we indeed may give you glory and your name may go forth in all the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I have something very startling to reveal to you tonight. You cannot always trust the modern editorial insertions in the Bible sitting in your lap. All right, I've shaken you up. Let me say it one more time. You cannot always trust the modern editorial insertions in the Bible sitting in your lap. I have an NASV. And of Psalm 60, the edition of the American editors in its modern printing says this, Lament over defeat in battle and prayer for help. And if I were to open my Bible up to you, you would see that I have taken a pencil and scratched through the word defeat. And above it have written the word Victory, lament over victory in battle, and prayer for help. Just to reassure you, uh, the ESV version that uh, we use here in the congregation regularly, uh, the ESV is much more conservative in its title. And it says, he will tread down our foes. And that's an example of a modern editorial introduction or insertion uh, to frame a a psalm uh, that is uh, accurate to the meaning of the text. So you can't always trust modern editorial insertions done in recent years by the uh, publishers. But you can always trust the small print little introductions to the psalms. From Psalm 3 forward, we quite frequently find them. And they are there originally in the Old Testament Hebrew Masoretic text. Uh, These little, tiny introductions, notes, explanations telling us something about the psalm. You know, in the Hebrew text, they are even included as a numbered verse. And so when you see a verse cited from the Hebrew text... The numbering in the Psalms is always off by one if there's one of these little introductory uh, statements. Sometimes, or most often, they include musical notation. To the choir master, according to Shusim Uden. What in the world is that? Well, we have to compare text with text because many of these technical musical terms have been lost to us. We have a most difficult time keeping up with Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart, much less Pink Floyd. Uh, It's a a very difficult thing for us to know about the rhythm uh, and about the uh, measure and about the technical musical details and even instruments uh, from the time of the Old Testament. But in addition to musical notation, sometimes we find something else. Oh, an author is given. A psalm of David, and that is in our text, a mitcom of David for instruction. But then there's that longer section tacked on to the end of that small print here, 
where we get historical detail. Sometimes theological summary where God is telling us through His inspired ones more of why this particular psalm was written. What was the occasion of its writing? What was the purpose for this song among the people of God? How do we know that it's authoritative? Well, because both Jesus and the apostles, in their handling of Old Testament psalms, made reference to the little introductions and used them in their interpretation and application. Jesus sang the psalms from his childhood in his home, in his synagogue, and also when he entered into his temple, the people of God there sang the very word of God inspired. And they would have known these little introductions for their proper singing and meaning. So Psalm 60 is linked with David's victories against Aram, Naharim, and Aram, Zobah, and Edom. And these victories are recorded for us in the Old Testament historical books. Back in 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 10 as well as in the parallel text in 1 Chronicles 18 and 19. Our Old Testament history is so important that God has given us bifocals. He has given us bifocals, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles cover many of the same events, but from different practical and theological perspectives. So we're able to see something of the depth and complexity by seeing in stereo. The key refrain, however, about the material and the events summarized here and commented on in Psalm 60 is best given in 1 Chronicles 18.13. It says this, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. This particular psalm is about great victory in the life of Israel. Uh, They are attacked and they defend themselves And the Lord gives victory to King David. Now, why was David so special? Uh, Not because he was as beautiful as Michelangelo remembers him, but because he was one who served God in the history of redemption. He was chosen to play a very unique and important role. He was one after God's own heart. He was one through whom God's greater Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was to come. His hometown would be the birthplace of Jesus. His royal line and reign would be placed in the hands and on the back of Jesus Himself. And so, we look forward to Jesus' return and to the new heavens and new earth when the One who is in the line of David fulfills the covenant promises made by God to David when he has a son who is also the son of God who will sit on the throne forever and reign over all the earth. Oh, David's victories are here extolled in Psalm chapter 60 that we might learn of Jesus. And so it's because of the Lord that wherever wherever David went, he was victorious. But David writes this psalm after some significant victories. 
He writes this psalm under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was the king prophet. On the one hand, he was the king. On the other hand, he also had the Holy Spirit come upon him. And he wrote and sang the very word of God inspired. He, in carrying out two offices, pointed to Jesus, who was the only one who had all three, prophet, priest, and king. And so we know this text is right. It's the right psalm for the right occasion. But we're left scratching our heads. Why a psalm so easily mistaken for a lament in defeat, why is it actually a lament in the context of victory? Well, you know this world in which we live is a little upside down, isn't it? Uh, A fallen world is a most fascinating thing. There's so much bad in the best of places. And there's so much good, ironically, in the worst of places. It's all upside down and backwards. And we live in a fallen world through thick and thin, through ups and through downs. When things are tough, what do you do? You cry out to the Lord. You pray to Him. Lord, I have a test coming up tomorrow. It sure would be helpful if you would make up for all my failing and give me an A. Lord, I've got this project that's due at work and, and, and my goodness, it's so much and so burdensome. I don't know if I can do it. Give me the strength to carry it through. These are fine and good prayers. But in times in which we are down and out, times in which our resources flag and fail, we quite, quite naturally have our hearts turned to the heavens and turn to the Lord and ask for His blessing and His strength. The really dangerous time for you is not when things are going poorly. The really dangerous time for your soul, pastorally speaking, is when things are going well. When you're at the top of your game, when everything you touch turns to gold, Every idea you have, people smile and they nod and they say how brilliant you are. That, when the, that time, when, you, when the world is your oyster, that is when your soul is in its most grave danger. And so, under inspiration of the Spirit, David writes this psalm at that kind of time. Victory after victory, but something yet is wrong. And so we will see this evening that our only hope is where? Not in us. Our only hope is in God through both thick and thin. Now the psalm begins in its stanza portion uh, with a cry to God for help because He has rejected His people. Oh God, You have rejected us. Broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. Here we hear the notes sung by David that there is some kind of trouble, that there is some kind of difficulty, and he speaks of God in active and personal terms. Uh, This is not just a wish where he's looking out over the horizon 
And he sort of out loud says to others, you know, it would be nice if, if this would all turn out well. It would be nice if things went positively for us. No, instead, God is seen as very personal, very involved. Uh, the events don't just happen. Uh, David is not just kind of wistfully musing. He is speaking to God in prayer. He is singing a prayer to Him. Oh God, he cries out. I don't know if I've told you the story, but many years ago, I was in North Carolina at my grandparents' home. They, they lived out in the country on old family land. And I was there and, and it was a cool, quiet evening. And, and it was suggested that perhaps I might want to sleep out under the stars. This was a, was a great and innovative idea. And so I was all in favor of it. I got a tent and took it out over to the side and I drove the stakes in and it's one of those old-fashioned tents. You know, the kids don't know about them today. You had to put a pole up on the inside and, and you had to tie these things down and stretch it out. It was an amazing thing. And, and you know, the inevitable happened. I hit my hand. And what was the first word out of my mouth? Oh, Lord, help me. Mom, Dad, absolutely not. I did the exactly right thing. I cried out, Granny! Help me. To whom do we cry out? To whom do we seek aid when we face challenge? David gives us a great example here. And it's an example which not only was in his mouth, but under inspiration of the Spirit, he was writing words that were to be placed inevitably in the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so Jesus teaches us by singing this psalm, Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us, oh Lord. His Father and our Father is personal and involved and concerned. Uh, he's active and interactive in the world. It's, it's not that He stands afar off and watches all these things happen. And we get ourselves in a silly mess and though, so He inserts Himself and, and unties the Gordian knot of dilemma for us that we might face a better day. God is active and involved. He, in His sovereignty, is raising up and casting down nations. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the bright, the cheerful, all of these happen in our daily experience. And God teaches us and speaks to us, both through His prophets and also through creation and even through history, which is also His creation. God is active and personal, and David addresses him even as you and I should, personally, particularly, directly. Oh, Lord, I need your help. Oh, God, come to my aid. It is too much for me. I am undone. And this is important because the psalmist is also here teaching us that God loves us. God loves you. God truly Loves his children. But his love is manifest in that very complicated way that the love of a father for a child or a parent for a child is expressed. I could take a poll here among all those 18 and under. Well, under 18. And I could ask the question, tell me, 
Do your parents always smile at you and hand you candy when you walk in the door? Uh, Do mom and dad grant your every wish? Uh, Do they tell you to dream a dream as big as all outdoors and they will be your servants and fulfill it? I see my children smiling. I think I know the answer. And so to your heavenly Father, He does not hand you the world on a platter. He mixes and mingles for you like your parents seek to. That interesting concoction stirred by love of the bitter and the sweet together that you might learn hard lessons and so be spared much heartache later. God... Your heavenly Father, in His love for you, in His concern for your soul, He leads you through the valley of the shadow as well as into the green pasture that you might learn through thick and thin both to trust in Him. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. This doesn't sound like the kind of thing that a loving God would do if we're as childish and as short-sighted as by nature we tend to be. But if we step back and take His perspective, if we listen to His voice and His Word, if we even learn to read the hand of unfolding providence with some basic clarity, then we will see that these are not incompatible in a fallen world with a loving Heavenly Father who is passionate for our souls. He truly loves you, and so He makes you see hard things. And sometimes He makes you stagger with the burdens that you must bear in order that you might learn to lean and rest upon Him alone. You see, the whole point of it all is in verses 4 and 5. Do you see the little word out in the column, Shelah? You know, you don't read that. It's just there expressed as a pause. Did you hear the pause? Did you think? Cat got your tongue? Pastor, why are you pausing? That's a longer pause than the others. Do you not know how to pronounce the next word? No, it's a break. And it's meant to give you time to ruminate and to reflect and to think upon the meaning of the text. Why a shalah here? Well, because it's talking about Jesus. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. And then we're to think about the meaning of this. Do you remember the old camp song, For His Banner Over Me Is Love? Have you ever read a book published by the Banner of Truth? Trust? If you haven't, you ought to find one. They're on the internet. Amazon has them. Uh, we have some here at the house and at the, at the church. We'll be glad to loan you one. Good old Puritan works. Uh, the banner is a reference to the Word of God. The banner is a reference to God's uh, royal and divine seal being over His people. His covenant promises, His covenant love fulfilled only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has set up a banner for those who fear Him that they may flee to it from the bow. Oh, in time of trouble, our hearts flee to Jesus, and He is our refuge and our strength. As surely as David and his men rallied in their battles, 
fighting in hand-to-hand combat against the enemies of the people of God who would put them all to the death, who would seek to burn their towns, slay their children, and rape their wives and daughters. God gave that banner that they might rally to it and know that He is their strength. Verse 5, after we ruminate, teaches us that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God alone can save. And so in the face of apparent rejection by a God who is personal and interacts, but by a God who loves them with a covenant love, they learn and we learn because David sings that God alone can save. And then it's as if uh, he switches to a new topic. He moves on from verse uh, stanza one to stanza two, as it were. And here we read, O God, you have warned us. And that covers verses six through eight. God has spoken in His holiness. And then we have an extended quotation through the end of verse 8 about what God has said to the people of Israel through David the prophet king. But the first point is that God is not silent. God does not sit tucked at some far corner of the universe paying no attention to the events and the lives of His people. God has declared... He has given His Word. Before things have happened, He has put His stamp of sovereignty upon them by His declaration. Your God, your God is a God who is not uninvolved in your world. And He has spoken to you about what your life is like. He has told you about what is to come that you might know how to live in the here and now. And what has he said? Well, through David he has said, With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. What in the world is God saying to us? Well, whatever the words mean, we must take them to heart because he doesn't just uh, float them upon the air. He speaks them to us from his holiness. God has spoken in his holiness. These words are important, even whether we understand them or not at first glance. God is holy. And from the unapproachable, uncreated light of His holiness, He reveals to us. He shines down a ray. He places a ray across your face that you might know more about Him and what He's up to in your life and mine. And in these words, God reveals His decree of history. God here tells us about what is to come. He says, I will divide up Shechem and I will portion out the Vale of Succoth. Again, a a statement of God's activity. He's not passive in the world. He's active. What occurs 
as nations are raised up and cast down, as, as borders are drawn, as treaty settlements are made, as, as kings assert their power in their realm, all of this happens under the sovereignty and the decree of God. He makes history. And then he begins speaking of places that we remember. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is mine. My helmet. Judah is my scepter. It's portions of the twelve tribes. It's different sections of the land. If I were to translate this into language that we can understand in our time and place, Texas is mine. Oklahoma is mine. Montana and North Dakota are my creation. And even Alabama. And even Florida. And even California, they're mine as well. God speaks here about His ownership and possession. And He tells us the land. The land of Israel, the land of promise, the land given to the sons of Abraham. The land is mine. Now for a season during that performance of the grand opera called the Old Testament, the grand opera of redemptive history, the land meant a certain plot of ground or real estate in Palestine. It was absolutely essential that David's capital end up in Jerusalem because it was part of the grand play. And Mount Zion was there. And the temple had to be built. That outside the gates on the hill of Golgotha, the Son of God might die for our sins. Oh, it was important that Israel go from Dan to Beersheba It was important that it extend itself from the Mediterranean on the one side across the Jordan on the other. This was absolutely essential in real estate terms because it was all a part of the play, the opera, to teach us about Christ and His church and the glories of His salvation, which was for all the earth. The land, in truth, even then, pointed not to real estate, however. It pointed to heaven. It pointed to the new heavens and new earth. It pointed to the renewed creation upon the triumphal return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abraham doubted whether he would ever possess the land. And our Heavenly Father spoke to him quite plainly and told him indeed that he would. What did he ever own? Just a cave. He paid too much money for it too. Just a cave in which to be buried and out of which to walk on resurrection morning into the land that he and those who are his true descendants would possess forever by the grace and power of God. Oh, the Lord through David sings to us. He in song and melody declares his declaration. The land is mine. But then he also tells us the nations are mine too. Oh, he has a helmet and a scepter and and some accompanying places, but then he switches tone into the minor key in verse 8. 
Moab, it's not my helmet, it's my wash basin. Edom, over Edom, I cast my shoe. Now, I've spent a little time recently in uh, around hospitals and uh, uh, recently uh, received an inheritance that I did not request that included uh, two items that I have seen at the hospital, uh, those magnificent creations called uh, potties, you know, a potty chair. Uh, we won't go into all the details of it, but it's an amazing mechanism. <clears throat> Retains some degree of dignity in the midst of... Uh, Uh, the stark confrontation of the limits of our own humanity. That's the kind of language that David is using here under inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, Moab is the kind of place where I wash the muck off my hands. Edom, that's the kind of place where you throw your shoe, a sign of indignity, probably a reference to uh, uh, something a little more uh, uh, earthy than just the washing of hands. The point here is is that God possesses not just Israel, not just His people, but He is sovereign over all the realm, over all the world, over all of creation, all the nations, including the great nations of Persia and India and China to the east, as he wrote this text, and the nations of Greece and Rome and the Celtic Empire to the west. All of them. Are, are the Lord's and under the Lord's sovereign control and reign. God Himself holds sway and He shapes and molds their history by His divine decree to teach us that all the nations and all the creation and all of time and space and all of history is His. Even your history and mine. You remember the old hymn? Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest regions shall His empire be. I suspect Queen Victoria liked that one a lot. But it speaks a truth. All the world, the farthest away galaxy that your eye can and cannot see, it's all under His sway. And so He has warned us He has spoken to us that He is the one in sovereign control over thick and thin, over big and small, over easy and hard. He teaches us through all of these experiences to trust in Him and Him alone for our salvation. And so the psalmist comes to the conclusion and sings out to us what what you must never forget. And that is that only God can really defend you. Only God can really be your help and aid. In verse 9 he says, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? When that giant problem is in the middle of the road, when it is enormous in size and you cannot imagine how you will cope with it, God is your only hope. God is your only aid. I don't know what your Edom is. I don't know what the challenge that God in His sovereignty has faced you with. But even your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as He looked out over Jerusalem, as He wept over its sin and misery, as He contemplated 
the pain and suffering of the cross, which was His calling and His lot in the sovereign choice of His heavenly Father, as He embraced that suffering with joy that we might live and that you might be reconciled to the Father, He did so knowing that God was His only hope and aid, His only comfort in time of trouble. You see, you must have God fighting for you to win. You must have God fighting for you or you will lose. Verse 10, Have you not rejected us, O Lord? You did not go forth, O Lord, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. This is clearly a reference to the fact that you will lose in defeat. And so you need God. But the irony is, is that by that little introduction and by the next statement, oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of men. We are also taught ironically that we will lose even in victory if we don't have God. You see, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 8, if you go back to 1 Chronicles and you read the parallel account, you will see that David and his great captain, his great general, Joab, had enormous conquests, tremendous victory. Joab struck down 12,000 in the Valley of Salt in Edom. 12,000. Thousand. It'd take you all day to count them. In the parallel account, it tells us that 18,000 overall were struck down, probably including the wounded who perished and outsiders who were routed as mercenaries as well. Oh, even in victory, the soul and life of Israel is in danger if she does not go out to battle with the Lord. You see, a Lord, the Lord is alone the one that brings victory. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Don't mistake it. It's not that you let go and let God. It's not that you get in a relaxed enough position in the jacuzzi that all your problems melt away. It's not even that if you get a large enough piece of cheesecake, it'll all work out. The question is about where you are with the Lord. Do you go forth with Him? Does He go forth with you? Is God the one who fights with and for you rather than you fighting alone? Some of us have a very strong arm and we could pick up a claymore with hardly a blink. And we could swing it and win a battle. Well, I'm thinking of myself many years ago. But whether we have those talents and abilities natural by God's providence or not, all of our swinging and all of our winning is but an occasion of losing miserably unless we trust in the Lord. Trust in Him. 
He is your only aid. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we thank you for Jesus who is our banner, the one who has purchased our salvation, and that he indeed poured out his Holy Spirit upon David to sing these words that our hearts might be taught to follow you both in thick and thin. Help us to love you as we ought and serve you from the heart, trusting always in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.